will kill time until uh, Chris arrives, which should be shortly. My name is Jesse Single. I am a guy. I do some stuff. I have a podcast called Blotter Imported. I co-host with um, some woman. Um, I have a newsletter called Single Minded at jessesingle.substack.com. This is sort of an offshoot of that. There we go. Yes. Invite to speak. Chris, I'm going to mute you for a sec while I interrupt you. Well, I introduce you. I won't interrupt you, I promise. Well, maybe once or twice. Um, I have silenced Chris, and it's for the time being. Yes, this is Single-Minded Conversations. Chris uh, is a... Here, let me actually unmute you, dude. Hello, Chris. Can you hear me? you got to hit the little red mic. Yeah. There we go. You are a... uh, Yes, you're a podcaster. You have Decoding the Gurus, which I'll describe in a minute, and you're a cognitive anthropologist, correct? That's right. That's right. All right. Um, if you can up your mic volume just a little bit or get closer to the mic, that might help. But um, yeah, so Chris co-hosts a show called Decoding the Gurus, which is a really entertaining podcast where they take deep dives into basically internet gurus. It's 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 the folks you would imagine from Jordan Peterson to the Weinstein brothers to Joe Rogan. Who are some of the sort of slightly more off the beaten track ones you guys have done? Uh, we've covered Rutger Bregman, Anthony DeMello, who's, uh, like, uh, was a Jesuit mystic in the eighties, I, I guess. And, uh, yeah, some, and Taleb, I guess he's not that obscure. My mind has gone blank now that you've, you've put me <laughs> on the spot. Just under so, my, well, my withering questioning. Yeah, that's, that that. that very tricky one but uh yeah there's like obscure figures within the like so-called sense-making ecosystem like jordan hall these these are people that people won't know but um yeah a a variety of characters plus like ibram x candy and contrapoints um as well as all the idw stalwarts and then jordan peterson's daughter oh the uh is she the one michaela with the all meat diet correct that's right yeah, so you might not think she's a guru, but you know she she comes close enough to to merit consideration. Well, just to put you on the spot further, how do you define uh, what's your rough definition for guru and for sense making? Oh God, the, well, <laughs> for, for gurus, we our original interest was in the kind of emerging space of online pundits with a lot of takes across a whole variety of areas like people who you might regard as public intellectuals but who were more promoting things which look like secular philosophies so they didn't fall into the traditional guru space of you know being religious or spiritual gurus um, and they were not quite in the journalist political pundit space they were somewhere new and they you know probably encapsulated uh most obviously by people like jordan peterson and eric weinstein so our original concept was looking at secular gurus as opposed to spiritual gurus or political pundits um and and then over time we developed uh like a set of 10 criteria that we score all the people that we look at. Um, this is—is um, is it called the gar- garometer? Am I misremembering? 
That's right. You, I see you've studied the science. So <laughs> You're my guru. Yeah, that's, it's, a, it's a very scientifically precise instrument. Forget about the replication crisis, all that. It's, it's, it's technical and replicable. Yes, uh, high alpha yeah, and all that. Yeah, and, and part of the reason for doing that was in order to make us feel more comfortable about treating, you know, like Scott Adams, and Rutger Bregman and uh, Michaela Peterson as as like a category of guru when in many ways they're quite different, right? So we're not trying to say that the people we look at are all the same. And a lot of the episodes are kind of assessing whether they fit the archetype that we are uh, that we were initially focusing on, or you know whether they're doing something different. So that that's gurus. <laughs> broadly speaking the the sense making ecosystem is a little bit uh different like that tends to be i you know you've talked about on your show and all the places jesse like the the rationalists and you know the new atheists and those kind of quite online communities yeah. with niche interests and sense makers i would say are even more uh, niche than that and they they're kind of off shooting from the intellectual dark web and the rationalist community and they tend to be very interested in heterodox takes and in having long-form discussions about you know the philosophy of uh, uncovering truth and uh, and, and generally very suspicious of mainstream and media accounts and very open to things like Jungian philosophy or integral approaches. Um, so like a little bit, I would say slightly too open to alternative or, you know, heterodox. A, a mind yeah. so open your brain falls out, to use the old cliche. That, that would be a mean way. To, to you would never it, do that. Like, I would say that. I wouldn't. I'm, I'm very... I'm very, you know, very mild in my, I'm restrained in my criticism. So it, like David Fuller of Rebel Wisdom um, is probably the person who popularized the term. And his, his channel originally rose to prominence um, of an interview with Jordan Peterson, a kind of documentary about him. Um, but I, he's actually in a battle now. This, this is internet minutia, Jesse, so you should appreciate it. That there are people... Uh, within Brett Weinstein's ecosystem, the dark horse ecosystem, who also brand themselves as sense makers. And they tend to be, you know, the people pushing ivermectin and critical right. vaccines. So they're having a war, uh, like a, a kind of cold war over the, who is the real sense Oh, it's like the, the, the two Spider-Men meme pointing at each other, you're not the real sense maker. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you, you know, the, the, I think David was on, I'm very unhappy that the the brand uh, sense making got kind of lumped in. I like Sam Harris's podcast is called Making Sense, right? right. So I think he's somewhat um, like a totem totemic figure in in those communities. So yeah. So I, I would invite anyone with any questions or comments to get in the queue. I have plenty of questions. Uh, so so here, let's just take Brad, and then I'll I'll get to my question. Brad, what is up? Brad, you're going to want to unmute yourself. There we go. Hi. Um, yeah, this is just a question to Chris. And um, uh, essentially, you know, I actually am from India. So, you know, the concept of gurus, you know, I mean, it's mm. like 
kind of part and parcel of just, you know, the folklore of this, you know, ancient Indian society. And, you know, what strikes me about gurus is that, you know, you know, back in that day, every village, every city had like a bunch of gurus whose job was like to disseminate wisdom, you know, and like the podcasters, basically. Yeah. Very much so. But the thing was, is like, you know, if you have a thousand villages, you have a thousand successful podcasters. And I think, you know, I think it's kind of funny that now that we have the Internet and we have fewer intellectuals competing for the whole sphere of the the global audience, you know, do you feel like you're fighting a losing battle with decoding gurus? Because I just feel like with the Internet, there's just more and more gurus popping up because I feel like it's not it's a human impulse to, you know, share whatever knowledge you have, right? That's how you feel valued. There's, I think there's very few scientists who are content with just discovering it for themselves. You know, the big part of acquiring knowledge is like the pleasure of disseminating it to others. So, you know, do you ever wonder, like, you know, I mean, you even started your own podcast that, you know, you're kind of fighting a human impulse that is just going to be there forever? Yeah, it's a, so it's a good, good question. And I think that you're right. Um, whether you take it, you know, in the traditional Indian context of gurus or the modern ecosystems, there's no shortage of people who want to offer their wisdom to the world. And, and generally speaking, <clears throat> that impulse can be, you know, positive, negative or neutral. Sometimes guru type people do have things that are useful to say or, you know, even just interesting perspectives on things. But I... I think what we are trying to do on the podcast is not to get rid of the gurus because that would be uh, like a a Herculean task that will never succeed, but rather to illustrate and decode, so to speak, the kinds of rhetorical tricks and uh, like issues with logic that are, that are common. And there you do see lots of recurrent features. So, I'm, I'm not optimistic at all that the kind of people we cover will become less influential or that, you know, in a hundred years time after we're dead, probably there, there won't be a whole new set of like gurus using other new forms of media to communicate. But I, I think there always is a need to try and uh, kind of push back and identify uh, stuff with rhetoric. And I think people have been doing that for hundreds of thousands of, well, maybe not hundreds of thousands, but... For trillions least, of years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. back, like, you know, the Greeks were concerned with the, uh, like, people were debating about sophistry and all that. So, yeah, I think the the issues remain, like, will be universally relevant um, long yeah. after we... Can I, can I jump off that question? Because I that, that, that was a good question from Brad. Do you think that there's a correlation... I'm trying to figure out the best way to put this. Do you think you can draw like a sort of a straight a spectrum where with James Lindsay's fans, it's a little bit more of a cult of a personality than with Sam Harris's fans and the fans you develop sort of reflect your own style? Because I, cause I'm just thinking about how, from my point of view, um, you know, I sometimes disagree with Sam Harris, but the idea of like someone falling under the sway of Sam Harris doesn't really concern me whereas with james Lindsay, it's like he's pretty crazy does that make sense did i even form a question yeah i think i think you did and i i would like definitely agree that it is a spectrum i'm fond of you know viewing everything 
on a, a, a spectrum like from from terrible to to less terrible at least and, and obviously Sam Harris and the audience he's cultivated is significantly better than the one that James Lindsay has done but I I think that everybody especially people you know in podcasting and with the like you know apps like this and other things there is a growing possibility for mm, people making use and developing parasocial relationships and I I I think Sam navigates that. Like, there's people that lean into it and try to exploit it, like James Lindsay. And there are people who, you know, make use of the tools, but are also, like, taking steps to try and not encourage sycophantic devotion. So, so yeah, um, I, I think there, there definitely is variation. And Sam Harris is not as bad as James Lindsay. I should be clear that I encourage uh, sycophantic devotion, even though I have a smaller audience, much smaller audience than Sam Harris. Uh, Joshua, what is up? Joshua, you got to uh, unmute yourself, my friend. There we go. Yeah, can you hear me now? Okay, awesome. Uh, big fan, Jesse. Um I guess it's kind of a comment slash observation, but it seems to be that there's like uh, an origin story that follows the same path for many of these gurus or thought leaders or whatever you want to call them, where they're all, you know, originally kind of working in their intended professions, whether it's academia or a journalist like Jesse, and then unintentionally they get dragged into controversy because they decide to speak out on an issue um, and then they get thrown in the limelight and instead of, um, instead of being cowed down, they decide to kind of embrace it and take a stand. And, you know, we see that on a lot of people we see it with Jesse, we see it with, um, maybe Eric, not so much, but Brett, uh, you could say with Jordan again, not, not to kind of, uh, you know, put judgment on it. These are not, but, um, it seems to be then at that path though, that there's a divergence where some of these people in the group decide to embrace what I think is more of a shades of gray and nuance where it's kind of less about orthodoxy and it's more about willingness to engage in kind of liberal, you know, conversation and talk to people on both sides. And then there's other people who full on embrace kind of a very black and white point of view. And it seems yeah. like through the criticism get pushed often to, you know, a completely other side of things because of that criticism. So just to name examples, Jesse, I put you or maybe even, Barry Weiss as another person of people who've decided to kind of stay in that nuanced territory of engaging with people on multiple sides and tackling, you know, issues where on other hands you have ideologues like, um, I guess, Jordan Peterson and a whole other host of other, uh, Dave Rubin, you know, definitely an example, um, and a whole others. And I guess I'm wondering, you know, thoughts on, it seems like the people who, choose the more nuanced approach, honestly, have smaller followings because they're not just sticking to the punchlines and they're not just sticking to one camp. And I guess I'm kind of interested in, maybe it's more of a question for Jesse, but Chris also, you know, what, what are your thoughts on the people deciding whether to go for the more, you know, populist route versus nuance? 
Well, let me uh, let me kick that to Chris with a prompt, and then I'll give some of my own thoughts. But I mean, I, I thought that was a great point. Those were in part observations about stuff I wanted to ask Chris. But Chris, do you think part of this is folks sort of drowning in resentment over how they feel they were wronged, and 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 having their world get smaller and smaller to like the most dangerous and worst thing in the world are the the mean le- the mean people on the left making fun of you on Twitter um cause that that that's sort of my theory of the case for folks like James Lindsay perhaps or, or does that make sense yeah I guess so there's a there's a couple of thoughts that I have and one would be that uh you know I'm, I'm going to speak in generalities but there are certain cases where they won't apply so I think there will be some cases where there is a ra- radicalizing event or you know a precipitating event if you want where somebody was you know confronted on the campus and that this resulted in their public profile increasing and it's very much related to their public origin story uh like nick nick christakis for example was uh, you know an academic but probably not that well of a known public figure prior to being confronted at yale right so if you want to understand stuff about his stances, I think you need to understand that event. Similarly, Brett Weinstein and the events at Evergreen are seem like prototypical, right? But but there I have some caution because although, and I would say I was someone that used to um, fully believe the, the, the version that I'm about to draw questions to. So with figures like Brett Weinstein or Jordan Peterson, when you go back and look into what they were up to before they rose to prominence, you often do find that it isn't the case that these were people, you know, just bumping along like, you know, standard academics, or they tended to be people who had, like you suggested, Jesse, a lot of resentment and a lot of grandiose uh, views about their own theories. Brett thinks that he discovered something which undermines the pharmaceutical industry in the US and he has an alternative theory of evolution. Um, Jordan Peterson developed, you know, the whole maps of meaning thing. But even before that, he was kind of being pulled up for his lectures containing a mixture of like validated, you know, well-established theories and his you know, idiosyncratic uh, material that was like highly speculative, but but very engaging. And so, so I, you think some of these folks were, were grandiose all along and didn't develop a pathological grandiosity because of how they were treated? Yeah. So I guess uh, I'm trying to say that I think that the the events that happened definitely raised their public profile, and it, they they definitely can't change things. Like you can see people, you know, develop over time. But I think that a lot of the characteristics that make them able to grasp that moment, to appear on Tucker Carlson, to, you know, do grandstanding speeches in response to students um, that are shouting at them, those are characteristics that were there beforehand. And like Brett Weinstein in 2012 was teaching a course on um, how to sur- survive post in the post-apocalypse, right? That's, but Chris... That's not an, yeah. But, but Chris, wouldn't you say that it's not so uncommon for academics to create some level of controversy or like notion? I, I mean, Jesse, we were seeing just this week that, um, geez, I'm blanking on the former New York Timer, uh, New York Times uh, 
um, writer, you know, stirring up controversy, and yet you're not going to see the level, if you're following the orthodoxy, if you're following the conventions, then you're not going to run into as much trouble. I mean, plenty of professors, plenty of journalists, you know, some of them want that controversy, and yet it seems to be that there's certain waters that you can wade into that if you're following the narrative, you can be quote unquote controversial, but know that you'll get backing and you'll be honestly what you're doing is generating publicity versus certain areas that you go into and you're going to go beyond publicity to getting scorned. Well, I think there's a difference between Chris can tell me if he thinks it's more complicated than this, but I, I think it's just, if you're, if you're controversial by pissing off the right, that won't really, in most cases won't, pose a threat to your career unless you have a really cowardly employer. But if you're controversial in a way that pisses off the left, they, you know, your, your colleagues and people on Twitter can make things unpleasant. Is that what you're sort of. Uh, I, I think I broadly sign off on that, but don't, but would caveat that, you know, it depends what kind of institution you're totally. at. If you're at a conservative Christian college, you can, be counseled for things that the right don't like. But the on the Josh's point about the uh, um, like academics, you know, wanting to cause controversy, I would say not in my experience, the majority of academics are pretty boring and like focused on, you know, niche topics. They're not Jordan Peterson figures or they're not uh, like the left wing equivalents of, you know, the vocal uh, academic activists you see on Twitter. Vast majority of academics are like neither of those two extremes. So I, I, but I, but I think Jesse is right that, you know, broadly speaking, you're, if you're in a liberal university and most universities are liberal, you're unlikely to face as much pushback for, you know, saying something controversial about the right as you would uh, if you contradict the thing on the left. But, but before I get to the next call, the only other thing I wanted to slightly um, disagree with Joshua was, um, I don't think there's that straightforward a correlation between like a negative correlation between nuance and popularity. Like obviously at the top, there'll always be ideologues, but like I think Barry Weiss is, is much more um, successful by most metrics than James Lindsay, for example. And I think she's more nuanced than James Lindsay. So, and in my experience, there's like, there's actually a pretty healthy market for just like fairly down the middle explanatory journalism. I mean, one of one of my most read Substack posts was literally just like a TikTok explaining exactly what happened during the Kyle Rittenhouse shooting because so many outlets failed to do that work. So, um, yeah, that's that's just an observation about that. Oh, well, uh, thank you, thank you both for answering the question. And uh, Jesse, I pray that you're right because um, having a growing, I don't, I don't want to say political, but people that are willing to engage on an issue by issue basis and live in shades of gray seems to be where we need to be. So thank you. Thank both. you. I, I think we're in a good era for that. What what worries me, and actually I want to, uh, we'll get to you in a minute, D. Chris, I want to ask you about this too, because the thing that, like well, the trend that worries the hell out of me almost more than anything is the hyper-balkanization of everything. So these these are two culture war stories that maybe in the grand scheme of things aren't that don't matter. They won't matter 5,000 years from now for sure, but like, I feel like even among left of center people, we have entirely different fact patterns that are taken as true about things like uh, the Covington story or the Google memo. Just just reality just branches off in so many different directions. And it, it seems like that's getting worse. And I think that 
that maybe drives people to gurus who can be like, I will tell you the one true way to see the world. Is, uh, do you think that correlation is correct? Yeah, I, I, I definitely do. And I, uh, I, I think it is concerning that, you know, you, you can end up in balkanization, but I, I think one issue as well is that, and it, it, uh, I, I don't know if it's kosher or not, Jesse, but I'd probably put the question to you um, that, like, when, when, say, like, take a story about the, the trucker's convoy, right, which you covered with uh, on Blockham Reported. The neo-Nazis. Yeah, yeah. So you have that, right, where you have the narrative that everybody on the convoy or any association with it is a white supremacist, which is obviously... A, a hyperbolic exaggeration, uh, like at the, at the least, right? But um, on the other hand, then in the heterodox sphere, and I I put you know you there, uh, you have people kind of push back and say, well, well, the people are focusing on you know individual leaders, and they're not applying the same standards that they did to the um, the riots in the summer. I completely agree about the like you know the the standards not being the same. But I, I think there's a danger that comes that like, uh, like I'll, I'll take a concrete example. When you were talking about the, you know, the hit, the Hong Kong thing, right? And people were saying, uh, or, or some various people were linking that to Hail Hitler, right? And saying, so this is a neo-Nazi trope associated with the Pepe, like clown meme, right? From 4chan. And, and you and Katie were laughing at that saying, you know, that obviously most people, that are hearing the word Hong Kong, they're thinking about the, the truck. They're not thinking about, you know, hell Hitler. Um, yep. And I, I think that's true. But I also think, like, if you went to Paul Joseph Watson's account or some of the, like, darker places and you see them tweet out about the trucker convoy, you can see lots of responses under it saying HH. And when you look at those accounts, right, the type of accounts they are, they're not good accounts. And I, I don't think that they're unaware and so I, I guess I'm I'm pushing back that saying, you know, your audience might get the impression then that anybody that references that is kind of right. a, you know, a woke person being a, like hyperbolic. And they could be, but it, from what I've seen from like people that, that dug into that, there was a lot of like far right involvement, especially at the top levels. Yeah. So I, I guess, you know, I, I'm kind of saying in trying to carve out nuance, is there a danger, you know, and I, I think there is a danger <laughs> to, to put my cards on the table, yeah. that we, you know, become overly sympathetic to the heterodox takes, which are sometimes wrong. Yeah, well, I, so I think we're talking about two different things. One is if the leadership of the convoys were members of established far-right groups, that's an eminently important thing to report on. But I think you're slightly conflating that with like, like I promise you that I could I could throw up some signal on Twitter and get fifty moron Nazis to announce themselves and announce that they're Nazis now. There there are Nazis on Twitter, but like the fact, how much attention should we pay to the people, random people replying to Paul Joseph Watson tweets? Because I think part of my general theory of like what's gone wrong here is that. Some journalists on the left during the Trump years have greatly inflated the importance of explicit white supremacy and white nationalism in the U.S. And 
I say that as a liberal Jew and liberal Jews don't tend to do well when those folks are powerful. <laughs> but I think I, I just think like the things that make America flawed mostly don't have to do with that. They're mostly, to use my own catchphrase, more complicated than that. So I think you could see it both ways. You could see a pundit obsessing over the fact that there's people saying Hail Hitler in Paul Joseph Watson's comments, or you could see someone being too nuanced and too hedgy that they don't want to like, they can't see their nose in front of their face. And I, I, I think both of those are dangerous. Yeah, I, I hear that. And I, I don't mean to get us like bogged down on this, but I, I, I guess my, my response to that would be that while I think you're right that the people over apply the explanation of, you know, overt white supremacy or, or even, you know, systemic, uh, like racism or it, it can be over-ascribed as like explanatory. I think you still have to grapple with things like the, the popularity of people like Nick Fuentes and the extent to which a lot of that has been now brought, if not into the mainstream of the Republican Party, it's, it's now a substantial wing of it. And that, that is, you know, I, I think that that is still a, like a fringe, but I think, you know, in the concentric circles model that you have a lot of people that are a lot more tolerant of uh, extreme stuff that are not people with small platforms, you know, just making comments in Paul Joseph Watson's replies. They're, yeah. They're well, who was it? Was it Marjorie Taylor Greene who went to that conference a week or two ago? Yeah. Or even like, you know, in a very real way, you can regard James Lindsay with the help of Chris Ruffo as, you know, producing a mainstream plank of the modern Republican Party, right? The anti-CRT thing. And I'm, I'm not saying there's nothing to criticize there, but I, I think it can be wrong to view it as like that there's no, you know, it's just Twitter drama because it seems to have quite a, an influence um, on the right. Yeah. Um, let me let me think about that more. I do have more thoughts, but let's take another call in the meantime. But yeah, let's return to the CRT stuff because that's important. And we might have a disagreement there. D, what? Hey man, can you hear me? I can. Yeah, I first of all with um, I, I think the big the big diff. First of all, I've always seen the big di- one of the big differences between um, the left and the right is I think the left tries to kind of historicize things and the right tries to naturalize things. And so I I've always seen there's a section of the IDW who are people who are kind of done with some of the excess kind of wokeness, but then there are people who I think are mad that they can't. That, that existing power structures are being challenged and they're trying to naturalize that, that those power structures. And I, I do think that, you know, we have to be honest that there is, whenever people talk about the fact that the woke left is so powerful, I kind of grapple, I kind of laugh at that because one of the easiest ways to become powerful, if you're just, if say you're not Jesse Zingle, is to say that you are against the woke left. Like if you just have a, if I just yeah. started the podcast, particularly as a black man. And I just said, yeah, I'm black and I'm anti-woke. That's an easier, way easier podcast in terms of popularity to get than if I'm- I would, I would like to acquire your new podcast. Yeah, it's way easier. And I could be probably on Daily Wire if I had enough talent than it is if I'm saying, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm D and I support um, CRT and I'm going to tell you why. Like, so I do think there is currency in being anti-woke. Yeah. And I think- one of my criticisms of the IDW and one of my criticisms and one of the reasons I think people like Greenwald and sometimes um, you, but although I don't think you're, I think you are more balanced, 
are, are kind of labeled right is because there's an issue of, of intent and there's an issue of focus. And sometimes with IDW types, there's a focus of all the liberalism on the left while not addressing it on the right. So I, yeah. I, I think that's, that's, I mean, I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, in, in five years, Republicans have banned CRT from, cause it was going to be originally, it was just going to be elementary school. Then it was high school. And then now people like uh, Dan Abbott or Greg Abbott are like, Oh, we're going to ban it in college. So, you know, that's not a side that's committed to liberalism. Yeah. I think, well, Chris, I think that gets into something you wanted to talk about. Cause my, my sense is one of your critiques of like, blocked and reported um is that potential misplaced focus and not focusing on on conservative uh authoritarian uh yeah i I, i'm not i despite what people think i'm not arguing that you need to spend all your time talking about idw or or oh yeah no no i'm sorry i wouldn't i wouldn't suggest yeah so i guess i my my concern would be like uh, similar to us, like because we, of the kind of people that we focus on, we tend to be more exposed to the craziness amongst the heterodox and, and right-leaning uh, contrarian gurus. And that makes us, you know, like when people uh, were defending Rogan or defend Alex Jones, for example, they often don't know very much about the content that they're talking about. It's quite frustrating, right? And I feel that in the same respect with you guys, because of your focus, and it's a legitimate focus, means that you're aware of a lot of the craziness that goes on on the left and the woke spheres, and that that inevitably comes with the possibility that, you know, you end up with a skew. So I I guess I'm, yeah, that's the way I would frame it. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a few things going on here. One is that between the ages of like, well, from from the time I wrote, I, I won't make this too much about me. It's not my story is not interesting, but it might just explain my thinking. From the ages of like eighteen to God thirty, um, I was like when I wrote, I was just sort of a progressive or left wing pundit, and I. I came of age when George W. Bush was in power and it was astonishing that to us that he was elected and then that he was reelected and the Iraq war. And I spent many years just sort of saying stuff I believe, but stuff that wasn't really surprising for a progressive. And I think especially after Trump was elected, just the question of the, the marginal value of my work and what is most interesting and what attracts an audience, um, I just don't think anyone could claim that there was a lack of focus on Trump or on the right during during the Trump years. And I do think things changed uh, on the left. And I um, in 2014 or 2015, I really thought it was just dumb college students. And I would write about it a little bit, but it wasn't a focus. But I, I just from where I sit. Uh, and you might be in different circles than me. Like some of the, some of those worst tendencies really did infect like journalism and academia. And I don't know. I'm a nudge. I like being able to write about controversial subjects, and I, I like the idea that we can work toward knowledge. And I think our ability to do so is being inhibited by these forces. I, I do think if you you can fall down a rabbit hole and decide that you're uh, you're so against this lefty liberalism, you're going to vote for Trump, which is pretty deranged. And you know, you should always have the right amount of balance but 
I don't know. I think there's just no right answer, like how much time you should focus on this or that. But it's like that um, that line, you know, pornography when you see it. When someone's gone off the deep end, I think that often becomes pretty clear. Yeah, and I, I think you're right that, like, you know, everybody has to draw the lines for themselves, and I'm not in any way advocating that you become, like, you know, a resistance Trump cast um, or or something similar or another version of QAnon Anonymous. But but I guess, um, like, again, to take a concrete example, like, I think that if you're active in the, the kind of spheres that we both are, that, like, it's impossible to avoid the... Uh, hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, kind of debates, yeah. right? The controversy. Yeah, and you have people like Brett Weinstein, but you also have Joe Rogan and Robert Malone and Peter McCulloch and so on. But uh, to me, it seems there that there's, like, you're a science journalist. There's it, getting a grasp about that controversy. I don't think would be beyond you. Like, you're you're a good science journalist, and yet when I've heard you. This, yes, sorry, sorry for the compliment. It just slipped in. I do. Uh, if uh, when I've heard you talk about ivermectin or Brett Weinstein, I I hear instead like a very clear hedging of well, I haven't looked into this, and you know he said some crazy things, but I I don't know enough about the literature. And, and Katie is definitely much more, you know, uh, like sympathetic or hesitant in that way. But that to me, I'm not saying that that betrays that you you would never say anything negative about Brett Weinstein or anything like that. But I, I think it's more that I'm saying, you know, the fact that you haven't done that when you are the kind of, you know, nerdy person who will look at like paragraph six on a paper and, yeah. and be concerned that people are misrepresenting it, it, it speaks to that difference, right? That's, that's the kind of thing I would focus on um, and get very frustrated about them, people hedging on ivermectin. But you... Are probably see it as that people are already talking about that enough. So why do you need to? Yeah, I think you anticipated my response, and 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 I should say also, covering medical controversies is a little bit different from covering social science controversies, and there would be a little bit of barrier to entry. And um, I don't want to get too meta, but I, I I felt there was absolutely blanket coverage of of these issues, especially ivermectin and. I just didn't think there was like a big explanatory gap there. Like we needed someone else to point out. I think Weinstein's trajectory on this stuff has been, has been really disgraceful and I, it sucks. Um, I mean, I hesitate to use such a moralizing world because that works. I think he like believes it and it's this instance of maybe overestimating your own expertise and your own ability to somehow see through all the stuff other people aren't seeing. And, um, but in terms of like, I don't know, it just doesn't feel like a, a, Blotter important segment because everybody is talking about it at the same time. So anyway, D, we're we're ignoring you. Are we addressing what you were talking about? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, the last thing I wanted, the couple last couple points I just want to say is, uh, yeah, I think some of them believe it. I think some of them don't lean into it because, like, like someone like Russell Brand, like who's an anomaly on the left, like he knows that if he types, "Ooh, does the vax work?" He knows that's going to drive views. Yeah. So I think a lot of this is profit for people, um, and. You know, the other thing is, even with things like the don't say gay bill, premise is so important because on the surface, I actually would probably be more inclined to support it. But then the author of the don't say gay bill explicitly said, yeah, less people are going to come out as uh, as uh, 
as gay because of this bill. He, he said yeah. that. And even with the trans stuff, like it's amazing to me that conservatives after bashing women's sports for years are all of a sudden concerned with like swim meets and stuff. So I've gotten frustrated, I guess, with heterodox sneakers because they take things constantly to me at face value, particularly ones on the left, like Bill Maher. And they don't look at, okay, what is the purpose? What is the person's actual intention of doing this? Not just in terms of like philosophically, what is their intention of doing something? If Ben Shapiro wants to platform someone, is he doing so in a, I want to actually have a debate or is he winking and nodding at the wrong people? Same with people like James Lindsay. So I, I think those are kind of some of the frustrations that kind of people have towards uh, heterodox people, I would say. The, those strike me as fair points. Thank you for the call. Brad, Brad Rags. What is up? Uh, yeah, actually, just uh, this question is sort of a follow-up on what Dee just said, and it's um, actually an observation that I made, um, you know, listening to a bunch, bunch of heterodox thinkers. And I think, um, you know, something I've noticed is that, you know, um, you can take criticism from people as long as you, you're much more likely to listen to criticism from people if you believe at some level they're on your team, you know, like, um, and... Yeah. You know, with, like, heterodox thinkers, well, let's, let's take Ben Shapiro, right? Like, I think there are some takes where I do agree with him, but, like, when you sell a mug saying liberal tears, like, in my mind, that's just, like, you really don't care anything about, like, you know, me or getting better, right? Whereas someone like David Sachs, you know, who's a conservative, right? Um, you know, even if we may not agree on political positions, you know, I get the sense that, you know, we both want the best for the future of this country, and so I'm going to, like, you know, take the time to listen to what he has to say. Yeah, or like, like David David yeah. French, even when I disagree with him, the idea that David French would make an argument just to, like, upset liberals, I, I can't even... Fa- yeah, ex- exactly. And uh, I think that's really important, and it's particularly important in, like, the heterodox community because, like, you know, I think a lot of the heterodox thinkers are, like, free thinkers, and they're like, you know what? You just got to be receptive to the truth no matter who says it, no matter what. You know, like, you have to have an open mind. Like, Sam Harris, where, like, there are no tribes. And I'm like, no. I mean, like, that's sort of a, I think it's like a human impulse to, like, identify tribes and then, like, filter people's information based on whether or not they are in my tribe or not. And I think the reason I bring it up is, you know, I feel like, to me at least, the effectiveness of people in the heterodox thinkers, and I'll take three examples. I'll take you, Barry Weiss, and I'll take even Chris, right? Um, Like... Uh, you know, for example, I think Barry Weiss is someone who is a heterodox thinker who's very willing to criticize the left, um, and maybe too much so, where to sometimes I need to get, like, a signal from her that, you know, in the end she does want the Democratic Party to get better, and this isn't really just, you know, um, catnip for the Republican readers. Um, and then I feel like you're someone who's kind of in the middle. Like, you are able to, you know, call out, you know, mess up from both the left and the right. Um, but you're pretty tolerant to criticism from the left. And, you know, and then I think Chris, I think, is actually someone who is more protective of the people who are woke, even though he is, you know, someone who is open to criticism. But, like, I'm just curious, as both of you guys, I still consider heterodox thinkers, do you feel like, you know, you have to actively send signals that, hey, I'm still on, I don't know, team liberal democracy for you to maintain your readership or do you not really think about that when, or do you just like, I call it like I see it. I really don't care what people think of me. Again, I'm just, I want to know how you, you guys I, 
I'll, I'll, my answer is quick. I, I still feel a tick to like indicate that I'm on the left, which I think is pretty dumb and just comes across as pointless and performative. I, I just think any, if I sat down and took a test about my actual policy positions, they're all so far to the left of the median American voter. And at a certain point, I just can't worry about if people are going to accuse me of being right wing. But but what about you, Chris? Do you, it, do you feel like it's important? And I, I'm not meaning to, I can see why this might be important. W- what's your stance on this? Do you feel like you need to like sort of lay out certain markers of like, here's what we believe, here's what our broader... Uh, I mean, I'm not conflicted about whether my politics lie, like I'm center left. So that, that doesn't cause me, you know, sleepless nights worrying where I might be. But the, on the point about how people perceive or um, react to the content that we produce or what it might be saying, um, I, I think that there, there is always a, I, I'm more concerned if people are misinterpreting what I'm doing and are taking it as supporting something that I don't support. So I won't not represent an argument for that purpose, but like for give a concrete example, I wrote a piece about um, back when the Cambridge Analytica controversy happened and it was being presented that, you know, uh, the Russians and Trump like hacked the election um, and via psychographic method, methods enabled Trump to win. And that was really not supported by the evidence. And I'd done ver- uh, research uh, involving methods collecting data online. So I was familiar with some of the tools. So I wrote a piece basically saying how people were buying into Cambridge Analytica's marketing materials. And then obviously that proved quite popular with figures on the right, right? Because it, it, that's always the it, thing. You get that Ben Shapiro retweet or whatever. Yeah. And the Dominic Cummings, for example, for uh, people who know British politics, reshared it on this blog saying, read this if you want to understand like wh- how we got Brexit. And I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm very much not a supporter of Brexit. And like the main point in that piece was that the way that, you know, the, the Brexit was, was one and and so on it was just like good old-fashioned right-wing populism uh anti-elite sentiment and you know xenophobia especially thrown in in the brexit to be it and so i did a follow-up piece like clarifying that like the way that people were using the piece that was not uh, like what i was arguing but the thing the facts remain what they are so i i think it is important sometimes where your work is being used for something that you strongly disagree with to, to kind of, to say that. Um, But you're, but you're not, you're not responsible for other people's logical missteps. Nothing in what you, you just made a point that people are exaggerating the effectiveness of these Cambridge analytical techniques and in, in effect boosting this company when this wasn't the role. And if people then take several, steps beyond that to make a right-wing argument. I, I just think at a certain point, people don't realize the way arguments, once they're out of the barn, they can gallop around the internet and get ridden in different directions by different people. And that often doesn't have anything to do with the author, as long as the author expressed themselves clearly. And, and you know what I mean? Yeah, there's there's degrees. So like I can think of another example, right? The, the You remember the researcher who was uh, like removed from his position at Cambridge, the fellowship, Noah Carr, 
Um, do you remember? Was this about? This was about um, race and IQ stuff, or am I confusing yeah. my controversies? No, that's right. That fun topic, which which always is uh, completely uncontroversial and a, a joy to discuss. But yeah, Noah Carl was someone who had an interest in the topic of race and IQ, and, and also uh, like Muslim immigrant crime, um, and and. Uh, so Noah Carl's research uh, would often be kind of promoted on on far right blogs or that kind of thing, right? And um, and now taking your stance, right? That's not his responsibility. He's just putting research out there, and and people might interpret it in line with the far right views, and that's not his responsibility. And I think in general that's true. Like you can't control how people use your work, but if that was me for example, and I had put out work like that and it started being promoted around the far right. And I really strongly disagree with the, their political goals and the interpretation of the research. I would want for myself to like make a public stance, like saying distancing myself and saying no, like and ask them not to rehold. But, but in that case, I don't want to misrepresent him because I don't remember the controversy. But in that case, was it he he, he was trying to raise awareness of what he saw as the scourge of Muslim crime, not a view I would endorse. So in that case, they do believe, agree with him politically to a certain extent, right? Right. Well, so Noah Carl is like, a, I think there's there's more to it because he, he, the way that he was presented was somebody that was like unfairly pillared and, you know, was just a normal researcher doing objective research. But, but in actual fact, if you look at this research I put, it's very much focused around uh, like those kind of topics and was, it, he was publishing and defending journals which are very questionable motives and, and quality, Emil Kierkegaard's um, journal. So anyway, it's get, it's getting into the weeds, but I just want to say that um, I I don't think that you have to constantly signal that you're on the left or you constantly have to do this false equivalence. Um, but I, I think that it is legitimate to to pay attention to you know what your output is being used for, and if you disagree with it, I think it's you know it's up to each person. But in my case, I where something is being done that I I don't agree with the interpretation, I feel somewhat inclined to to publicly state. Yeah, so, that, uh, well, that's happened to me yeah. where if someone like straightforwardly misinterprets me, I'll um, I'll I will absolutely correct it. Uh, is that what you were getting at, Brad? out a little bit brad but i i get what you're saying i i, I think that is a good thing to do and, and that question of how far our responsibility extends i think is often uh complicated rick sint what is up hey there guys hey. um chris uh let me let me generalize what i think is your project so uh you know i i would say it's um criticizing public intellectuals for their ideological bias 
and especially bad epistemology, uh, which is a great, great project. And, you know, you a, a lot of your work. And so, so let's split public intellectuals into the heterodox and the orthodox. And you do uh, good, you know, Brett Weinstein kind of heterodox side. Um, do you think there's a potential bias in, uh, you know, your approach of identifying gurus that the gurus are, are inherently going to be more on the heterodox, heterodox side? Uh, just meaning that, you know, a, a guru is someone who's, uh, there's a certain kind of mode that a guru takes to when he's biased and has bad epistemology that's going to manifest as, you know, anti-establishment, kind of galvanizing uh, a group of people that views themselves as outside of the mainstream and they kind of form an identity that way. Whereas they're, they're kind of similar bad epistemological processes going on on the orthodox side, but they don't really manifest as gurus. So do you, do you see that as a source of bias in, in where your focus is? Yeah. And so I, uh, hi, Rick. And yeah, I, I do agree that, you know, the, the kind of secular guru sphere that we've carved out lends itself towards people offering heterodox takes, because if you're going to present yourself as, you know, somebody with some revolutionary theories or galaxy brain takes, the general pattern is not to say, yeah, so the mainstream uh, position is pretty much right on this, right? And and you're right that that then means that there's a skew in the figures that we cover. And and I'd, I'd go further even to say that um, because of my particular interest, which would be that... Um, I think I like there's a I, I think I would see it as a misinterpretation that I'm a defender of the woke because I really don't feel like that. But I I do think that because I have an interest in the um, IDW style thinkers that they tend to be very strongly, to my mind, overstating the their case, and it means that when you're pushing back against them, that it can you know it can come across as being defensive of the side that they're targeting. Now, in some respect, I think there are figures that contradict that, right? Like the Robin D'Angelo, uh, potentially Ibram X. Kennedy, uh, or or other figures that you could look at and and could see, do they fall into that archetype? And I, I think that we, we do uh, want to focus on more figures from that. We're going to look at people in the tech sphere next. And then after that, we, we are going to do a couple of episodes focusing on people in the kind of, I, I don't know if I'd call it the orthodox, but like the, you know, the woke sphere or, or that kind of area. Um, so I think there's fertile ground there, but I, I think you're, you're right to point out that there's a discrepancy. And I, I guess part of my issue would be that, you know, critiquing the WHO or the CDC for misstatements is like, is a valuable thing that people can can do, but it wouldn't lend itself very well to our content. And I, I do, especially around COVID, think that a lot more of the damage to the, you know, infosphere or whatever you want to describe it, the online dialogue, has come from the heterodox anti-vaccine 
side. So th there is a danger of, on some issues, creating like a false equivalence. But 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 your your basic point, I think, is is perfectly valid that there is a skew in the content that we cover. My brain's not working. Was it Rick we just had on, or is Rick the next? Yeah, Rick we just had on, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Sarah, Sarah is next. Sarah, how's it going? Can you hear us? I'm going to jump to Siddhartha. Sarah, get back in line and we'll get you back on. Hey, Jesse and Chris. Um, I, I wonder if you could, uh, if you could explore the, 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 um, the power of incentives um, in in producing uh, people with large followings, large sycophantic followings. Uh, just just um, a thought to to get this started. Um, uh, recently, there was a, a tweet from Nicole Hannah Jones that got a lot of attention. The one about uh, Eurasia, and uh, when I came across it, my first thought was. Well, you know, she she calls uh, Europe a, a geopolitical fiction. I think, you know, in some sense, all geopolitics is fiction. I mean, from that definition. And this, my second thought was, okay, you know, uh, she's a huge star. Why doesn't she, you know, spend some of her uh, uh, capital, um, social capital, investigating and writing about the stories that she claims are being ignored? Um, in the mainstream, uh, f f uh, like conflicts in in uh, outside of of uh, uh, um, the Anglosphere or outside of Europe, such as uh, Darfur or the Congo or Burma or so on. And then my third thought was so the, kind of the tragedy is that like um, that her stardom is 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 probably to a large degree based on the provocations. That if she had actually done that she would not be a star. And, and so that there is an incentive structure out there that encourages this kind of uh, provocative um, like blustering. I, um, I think she's a complicated case because she did, her main beat was segregation. And I, I don't know if I went back now, all that work would hold up, but it was for the Times Magazine and for NPR. And I, I agree that she's gotten more blustery. And I think she's one of many people who, She's not her best self on Twitter. <laughs> not that I am either. Um, but I think, I don't know. I think it's maybe an interesting incident, uh, instance of like once you become famous, maybe you become more online or you become more competitive. I, I don't know. Chris, do you have any specific? I I just think that the, the general feedback mechanism is definitely in effect. That's like you're rewarded for hot takes and it it seems that you know the penalty which comes like where people dunk on you that that only lands insofar as it's your own side dunking on you and you oh know, i mean if she if she they, what i what i think people happen is they convince themselves that if they're piled on that's just proof that they're right and they're threatening the other side so in this case that they're threatening like the racists or whatever yeah that's that's like a really common asymmetric thing as well that like you can you can issue hot takes or highly uh like critical things and then if the people respond you you know you can kind of cry that you are now being targeted by um for trying to cover it so like yeah i i think that's really common and i i think siddhartha's point that 
the ecosystem rewards hot takes is is like it's undeniable. I mean, James Lindsay, he's just like a really useful example um, because his his notoriety was directly correlated with his growth in audience size. And like for many years, right, he was slightly controversial, but basically, uh, you know, just a new atheist guy complaining about things. And then as soon as he leaned into the culture war, you know, boom, uh, influence and uh, attention. So, yeah, it's it's really unfortunate, but the culture war pays. Yeah. Great, guys. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Arthur. All right, we're going to take last two calls. No one else get in the queue. And then I'll end with one final question for Chris. Sarah, I'll have you jump to the front because we uh, had mic issues before. What's up, Sarah? Hey, can you hear me? Yes, we can hear Oh, perfect. Okay. Uh, so sorry about that. Um, yeah, and then it was also uh, my husband's birthday today, so I missed the first half. Happy of birthday to your husband. Oh, thank you. 33. Happy birthday. <laughs> um, so uh, I'm sorry if this is slightly off topic. Um, so I uh, I really enjoyed your recent uh, interview with Liam Bright. Um, Liam's a great uh, Twitter follow, too, Chris, by the way. Uh, and one of my very favorite parts was – uh, <laughs> I feel, uh, I don't know how you feel about me mentioning this, but well, you guys are always dishing it out to everyone. So I guess I can say this without being rude, but, um, just him kind of bringing up the whole thing about, it seems like you kind of go with the status quo. Uh, if that, if you remember that part yeah, yeah, having yeah. to do with the status quo. <laughs> um, sure, and, yeah. uh, so, uh, I feel a little also weird mentioning this, but, so uh, I remember uh, back a few months ago, I tried to listen to your uh, episode about the Michaela Peterson whole meat thing, which I think is crazy. And to be honest, I think she's kind of crazy, too. Um, but uh, I, I suppose just like I I personally uh, was diagnosed with Crohn's disease when I was 13 and like all these chronic health issues that, uh, you know, none of the many doctors all throughout throughout like uh new york city like uh you know mount sinai uh well cornell columbia presbyterian you know haven't been, really been able to figure out some of these issues and then also uh my dad recently i think has like prodromal dementia and i spent like 150 200 dollars on a basically like a clinical uh prescription strength uh ginkgo biloba that is technically like kind of arcs only in Germany to to buy him because I am just so desperate to help and and I guess I just felt like in that context it reminded like when you were that conversation with Liam regarding the uh status quo thing and and just the um like that episode of with regarding Michaela Peterson like I don't agree with her at all probably about anything I don't even know for sure but I couldn't listen to it just because I felt like the first 20 or 30 minutes I got through just were so disregarding anything outside of what is considered like the orthodox medical uh, perspective, which, you know, I reached a certain point by like my early 20s where I realized that so many doctors will just pretend that they know everything. Do, <laughs> um, but do you think I just, it could be the case that, um, uh, first of all, I'm sorry about all of this. That all sounds horrible. And but couldn't it be the case both that doctors often don't know what they're doing, but that there also are like scam artists and people who selling. There definitely are. Yes. Yeah. 
yeah, there's so many of them. And uh, they're also just, I went down a rabbit hole in a very disturbing uh, subreddit about those people that just like fake all these illnesses illnesses that basically have Munchausen's is definitely a huge issue. Um, But then there are like so many people and I don't know if it's biased of me to say, it seems like a lot of them are women uh, that do have so many chronic health issues that, you know, there really is no explanation. I mean, you can spend all this time reading so many articles. I remember one time I, I, I went to the doctor and every time I went to this doctor at Wild Cornell, Cornell on the Upper East Side, I, uh, I would always have to be interviewed by a, um, what they call here in the States, a, um, a fellow who has already graduated from medical school and they've already done their residency, but now they're doing a fellowship for their specialty. And so I'd have to spend like 30 minutes talking to the fellow going through my entire medical history and all those other things before I could actually see the doctor who I'd only see for like five minutes. American yeah. healthcare, you gotta love it. And uh, this one fellow I'd brought in a, uh, a paper uh, that I found on, I don't know, I probably found it on uh, Google, uh, like Google Scholar, but everyone always says PubMed. So I guess if I want to be cool, I'll just say PubMed <laughs> um, that was published by multiple doctors at Johns Hopkins about this certain company, these two different, the study they did with, I can't remember the exact sample size, but uh, using two different combination of medicinal herbs. And uh, I showed it to the fellow and he said, oh, well, those are OTCs, which is over the counters. Um, none of those, uh, you know, like I, I asked him, like, can you show this to the doctor and ask if it's okay if I could try this? And he said, well, those are OTCs, like, uh, like nothing in that could, uh, ever hurt you. And I worked in a pharmacy for quite a few years. So I could think of was, what about like acetaminophen, paracetamol? <laughs> like if you take way too much of that, you can die very easily. Yeah. Um, or, uh, like lots of, lots of other things that are also sold in pharmacies are actually quite dangerous if interacted with other drugs or taken excess at a higher dose. Um, like this person had already been through like six years of school after like yeah. uh, medical well, school uh, and the residency. And now they're telling you things. Yeah. Like sorry. I just anyway, want yeah, to, no, I just want to give Chris a chance to respond to, to what you've said. Yeah, so I didn't so mean sorry. to jump in. I just, no, no, it's I okay. It sounds like you've been uh, through a lot. I just wanted to uh, ask him, like, ha- had you ever considered just within the context of medicine or any other area? Just uh, I-, I know you guys are all about being sassy, but um, like just that one episode just was kind of hard for me. Yeah, sure. So there's, there's a couple of things that you, you brought up. So uh, but I think two of them are slightly different, uh, like. One about Liam's critique of defending the status quo, like some one point of factor in this, like Liam is a, you know, revolutionary communist. So the status <laughs> quo that he's talking about is uh, that we are neoliberal milquetoast centrists, right? But 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 even setting that aside, um, I I would say there's a slight misinterpretation, and, and my my co-host Matt kind of made the point that. Because we are dealing with the characters that we are, that we're often pointing out, you know, how they're misrepresenting science or they're misrepresenting academia. But that does not mean there are not legitimate criticisms of uh, science or of academic standards. Like Jesse's book is a good example, which is why we had him on, not just to harass him <laughs> about uh, the, all the culture war issues, but also people like Stuart Ritchie and Ben Goldacre. These are people that I think do really good work critiquing the roles of the farm or the influence of the pharmaceutical industry and, and bad science practices. And myself, 
I've written papers on the open science movement and advocating for reforms in psychology and social science. So in in at least the academic and social science spheres, I'm I'm perfectly open to critiques of the mainstream. But I think what the gurus that we look at are offering is something which looks like that, but which is much more empty and much more about their own self-aggrandizing alternative theories. So so that's that's part of that. But on the specific issue about you know alternative health um, and uh, and potentially treatments being effective for people, so I am very sorry to hear everything that you've went through, and I I can understand why that might make you you know sensitive to that topic. Um, and I one thing I would say is like the American context, regardless of your stance on alternative or mainstream medicine, seems crazy to someone from you know that grew up in the UK where we have a national health service. So I have a lot of sympathy for people that have critiques and dissatisfactions with the way that the medical system operates in the US and but even you know in the NHS in the UK. Um, and our goal is not definitely not to laugh at people or poke fun at people who have chronic illnesses and are like dealing with difficult issues and like trying even people who you know get relief from trying out alternative therapies i don't have an issue with that but the people that we're targeting are not those people right uh, by and large we are focused on the people who tend to be selling alternative treatments to those people like Michaela peterson and her guests and in those cases i think i'm highly skeptical of the claims that they make but i also think what they're marketing is a extremely restrictive diet, um, along with a lot of anecdotal accounts and alternative things. So it isn't to say that the mainstream always has fantastic um, alternatives for people with chronic illnesses, but I, I do think that anyone active in those spheres, they really need to be skeptical, as skeptical of the mainstream authorities, um, as skeptical of alternative theorists as they are the mainstream authorities and i i tend to not see that i see people uh like who are very aware and, and very annoyed with what the way that they've been treated by mainstream medicine and this tends to make them vulnerable to people who are telling them yes those people are got it wrong they're just operating from an allopathic model um, and they don't really care about you like we do um, and those people are offering a product. So, yeah, I, 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 we, we, you know, we, we are sarcastic and, and I've, I've, not, I've not described myself as sassy, but I guess it fits. But it, it is not directed at the people that are suffering. I'm, I'm, if you make it through to the later stages of the episode, I know they're very long. We, we do talk a bit about the people that are suffering and I hope our empathy is clear. So that, that's all. That makes sense, Sarah. Yeah, thank you so much. And, you know, I might just skip ahead like another like 10 or 15 minutes. And yeah, thank you so much, Chris. And um, I, I understand like that that all completely makes sense and means a lot to me to hear that whole response. I feel like I have more thoughts, but it's too late in the evening for me. <laughs> no worries. Thank you for calling Thanks in, for Sarah. Question, Sarah. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, Chris, you get you can defend yourself, but I, I, I do get the sense that your work, even when it is sassy or whatever, 
is motivated uh, by some anger on behalf of people who might be getting conned by by these guys. Or I just want to mention it was like a 25 year old that started using on Slack, started using the word sassy to describe certain coworkers when they would leave like kind of sarcastic comments. And that's where I picked that up. So. Oh, gotcha. Totally <laughs> fine. Um, anyway, uh, right, Matthew, we're not, I feel bad, but we're not going to get to you just because we're, we're so over time and I don't want to keep Chris out much later, but Shauna, you will be the last caller before I wrap things up. It's a lot of pressure. I'm really going to screw this up, Jesse. Okay, <laughs> Chris, um, I wanted to preface this question is really for Chris because um, I'll be honest that I have not listened to Decoding the Gurus, but man, am I excited. I have added it to my queue. So thank you, Jesse, for that. Chris, you can send um, me a check for this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh Any podcast that could be called Sassy, I am here for it. I am super excited. And so my question kind of relates to that. Um, just, uh, Chris, I was trying to quickly read through some of your podcast descriptions in your backgrounds, and you touched on the social sciences. And this sort of might seem abstract, but I think it is actually important. From your background and your perspective, um, do you believe that humor and levity plays an important role and a lot of these discussions. And what I mean by that or where I'm coming from is I'll give you an example of like Jesse, even though he's Jewish, I think he's awesome. And so, Thank you. <laughs> um, yes. Um, so I'll, like, I'll give you an example. I had recommended uh, Blocked and Reported as a podcast for friends. And I didn't, I said, I'm not gonna explain why, but I want you to listen to it. And a couple of them quickly texted back after they had listened to it and they said, you know, we know exactly why you like this. And that has to do with the humor. And I mean, that that's credit to Jesse and Katie, but, you know, I realized how important, at least for me, that taking on issues that, and frankly, 60% of the stuff that they talk about, I have no idea, but I don't care because it's how they approach it. And the, and the way that they utilize humor and levity and kind of poking holes without completely destroying people through that process that I, I garnered respect for them and learn like over the last year, I have become more educated and engaged in these topics simply because they, at least again, this is just my um, perspective that they made topics engaging through Gotcha. So, so sorry, but you're so you're you're basically asking for Chris's view on the role of humor in having these discussions. Yes. Sorry, I'm very long-winded. I'm no. Sorry. Yeah, we, I I have like a multiple-hour podcast, so I cannot say anything to anyone about that. But that, like, on the the importance of humor, yeah, like uh, this might be self-serving because I'm someone that likes you know sarcasm and dark humor and that kind of thing, but. I think it, it it is really important and it's something that's often lacking in a lot of the figures that we cover that they're not they're not really a humor full people except when they're poking fun at their enemies and they they tend to have a very humorless attitude towards criticism directed at us and uh Matt and I whatever people generally think of us we come from cultures where taking the piss is the the norm so you know we we enjoy like being critical and and kind of like making fun of each other 
um, in the same way that we would with the other figures that we cover. And so I think that's that's really important. And uh, the one other thing that you raised is about, you know, our backgrounds as like academics and that. And I would, the only point I'd make there is that, you know, I don't, I don't think us being an, a cognitive anthropologist and a psychologist means that, you know, we're these authority figures, but it means we, we do have some, you know, relevant uh, experience in, in doing research. And it also means that our identity is not solely tied up in being like culture war podcasters. And Jesse, I'm not sure that you actually were. You're a journalist as well. So I, <laughs> I just want to say that I think that's important because it means that, you know, for a lot of the other people that we cover, it is the main thing they do. And so in some sense, there is a, they attach more importance to it. Um, so, so yeah, that that's a long-winded answer. But yeah, I think humor is important. And I it's part of the reason I like Jesse and uh, Katie and Blockton report. Yeah, I, I, and I guess my point is they earned my trust in their more serious uh, journalism by their use of levity and, and humility. Because I think at, at the end of the day, even in reading through Twitter diatribe, you can you see through the, the lack of humility and the lack to have some self-awareness and where it just comes across as like impotent anger. And I think all of that plays together as far as building uh, an audience and building that, building that respect. And then through that, tackling really um, difficult topics through great journalism. Thank you, China. I appreciate that. And uh, makes sense to me. Um, well, hey, Chris, thank you very much for doing this. Uh, one more time, that's... Um, Embrace the gur. Embrace the gur. Decoding the gurus. Do not embrace the gurus. What? What are you on Twitter? What's your account name? Uh C underscore Kavna. It's a it's a very cunning disguise. Really, really cunning. Uh, but yes, I, I will continue to listen, and I appreciate you coming on here. Yeah, it was it was fun. Uh, so, thank you for not heeding everyone tell you not to do it. <laughs> <laughs> we'll uh, yeah, we'll do it again sometime. And thank you to the rest of you for listening. As always, I would just ask if you enjoy the show, spread the word about it. Um, tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell your lovers, get people to check it out. Uh, yeah, I'll be back soon with some more stuff. And you can always reach out to me with suggestions about what to cover or who to have on. And I hope you all have a good night. Farewell. <laughs>